Previously, on Heavy Metal Historian, we explored the origins of metal, some of its subgenres, but also inspected the influence that historic people and events have had on heavy metal. 100 years after its declaration, the world still bears the scars and the impact of the Great War. The combat influenced a century of art, literature, but just as importantly, music as well. We have a look at World War I in metal. Welcome to episode 13, I'm Greg Davies, your heavy metal historian. In America, the centennial anniversary of the First World War was marked rather quietly this year, contending for time against the current news of the Ukrainian conflict, ISIS, Ferguson, Ebola, and more being shown on the mainstream television screens. And historically speaking, this is not surprising, for the United States had very limited involvement in World War I. The monumental conflict resulted in the deaths of over 9 million troops, of which only 110,000 were American, and of those 110,000, almost half of them were actually due to the influenza pandemic. What this means is that for most of the world outside of the United States, the Great War was exactly what its name was. It did what it said on the box. It was the greatest war of all to that point, signifying its size and its scope and the impact of the war and its results would not only be felt throughout the 1900s, but also into our current era as well. For the most part, it would be countries like Germany, France, Britain, Canada, Australia and New Zealand that would feel the full sobering burden of the war, a war that, as people would learn, was one of the deadliest conflicts in history up until that point. And though it was termed the Great War, in many ways, it should have been called the inevitable war. Also, it wasn't just Germans who were militaristic in 1914. The idea of the glory of war was a very popular concept all over Europe. And really, there's no evidence that the German people of 1914 were any more or less militaristic than the French or the Russians. They all had poetry that celebrated heroic sacrifice and dying for the mother and or fatherland. Prior to 1914, sentiment about war, particularly among the upper aristocracy, was that it was part of life, wherein the strongest strive for glory. This sentiment was a holdover from the ancient Roman days that had dribbled down through their regions of conquest, until warring was actually given the approval of the religious authorities with the rise of the Crusades, adding a purification and redemption reward to the perception of glory in war. While the mainstream tends to highlight the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand as the root origin of World War I, in reality, the event was little more than an excuse to ramp up old grudges. Countless battles had been fought during the 19th century, and it was the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 that would essentially turn into being the long-term grudge between Germany and France leading to the 1914 war. Both countries had major ups and downs through the War of 1870, and in the long run, they both walked away with black eyes from the conflict over the equilibrium of power. The Germans won the overall war and annexed Alsace-Lorraine into imperial territory. However, the resulting Treaty of Frankfurt proved to be an undesirable outcome to the two nations. In the face of the treaty, 34 years of animosity passed between France and Germany, the French desperately aspired to have the Alsace-Lorraine territory back under their newly formed French Third Republic, and Germany 
was fully aware of this. At the same time, the Germans' gains during the war were seen as below expectation, giving development to an expansionist desire that would dominate the politics of the nation for at least the first half of the 20th century. Under the leadership of Prussia, under Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor, Germany had emerged as a nation and as a world power. In 1871, her 39 separate states, after centuries of discord, had united at last. The kings of Saxony and Bavaria, the princes, dukes and electors, Brunswick, Baden, Hanover, Mecklenburg, Württemberg, Oldenburg, all paid allegiance to the king of Prussia, the Kaiser. This unity fulfilled a deep wish in German hearts. It gave them a sense of destiny. Even the leadership of Prussia was better than insignificance. And with unity had come an extraordinary upsurge of energy and expansion. Looking down from it, Paris was truly sovereign of cities, seemliest in sight. Wide bustling boulevards, the cafes, the Louvre, storehouse of Europe's treasures, the imprisoned sunshine of the Impressionists, the acting of Sarah Bernard, the Moulin Rouge, and the legs of Mistinguette, dinner at Maxime's. Picasso and Matisse were painting. In her quiet laboratory, Madame Curie was discovering radium. Paris was the mecca of the West. But Paris is not France. The glamour of Paris did not reflect the deepest truths about the French. It encouraged their optimism, but it concealed unrest and violent agitation among the industrial classes, who felt left out of a rising tide of prosperity. It concealed the canker at the heart of French politics, memory of the defeat of 1870, and fear of the rising might of Germany. Because of this memory and this fear, the army played a special part in the life of France. Shattered in 1870, it had made a remarkable recovery. It became a national army based on universal conscription. It schooled itself in colonial wars, but its eyes were fixed on the German frontier. In a nutshell, both countries wanted a rematch. Round two of the Franco-Prussian War, if you will. But coupled with these outlooks was a changing landscape amidst Europe as rising political ideologies began paving the way for the replacement of the long-established aristocratic rule. Democracy was paving its way through European reform, as was socialism, though its rise would take form much later, and the early roots of anarchy were also correspondingly beginning to take seed across the setting. Additionally, the power held by the royals of Europe was beginning to shift away from the hands of the monarchy and into the succeeding hands of either democracy or socialist states. The Kaiser and his family in Germany held the belief that time was running out for this rematch, for lack of a better phrasing. On the other hand, by the time early 1914 had come around, France had become exceptionally prosperous and influential across Europe, and its military was regarded as stronger after recent tactical though colonialist achievements in Africa. The sentiment across Paris was that perhaps it was time to reclaim the Alsace-Lorraine territories. Nevertheless, France would refuse to attack first. Their military treaty with Britain was signed over having only an absolutely defensive role. That is, if France was invaded, then Britain would step in to ally with France. It was these treaties that would have a major impact on the shaping of the First World War. 
Treaties had been signed among numerous nations after 1870, signing each other up as allies should conflict arise, while some, such as France and Britain's Entente Cordiale, was entirely defensive, others were more of general agreements, meaning that when one ally went to war, the others would unite in support. Germany and Austria signed the dual alliance in 1879, while 1894 saw the Russians sign agreements with France, which in turn was expanded into a new Triple Entente between Russia, France and Britain in 1907. Between 1887 and 1914, Europe was transformed from a system in which well-balanced forces maintained a delicate equilibrium to one polarised by two hostile alliance networks. In 1887, it was inconceivable that a crisis in Austro-Serbian relations could have led to a continental war, but by 1914, that was exactly what happened. The Treaty of London, created in 1839, guaranteed the sovereignty of Belgium, which had broken away from the United Kingdom of the Netherlands in 1830. Its signatories were Great Britain, Austria, France, the German Confederation, Russia and the Netherlands. A guarantee of Belgium's neutrality was also brokered by Britain. While Germany later disregarded the treaty, Britain went to war with the claim that they were upholding Belgium's neutrality. Forty years later, on October 7, 1879, the dual alliance between Germany and Austria-Hungary was signed in Vienna. Each pledged the other support in the event one was invaded by Russia and guaranteed neutrality should one be invaded by another major European power. Italy joined to form the Triple Alliance in 1882, but reneged on its commitment once war broke out in 1914. The most critical of these treaties, though, was the 1813 Treaty of London, in which a key piece of the puzzle was made known to the world. Belgium allied with nobody. It was in this treaty they declared their neutrality and no goal to participate in war whatsoever. In spite of the Belgian neutrality, these tangles of alliances via treaties spurred a strengthening of the sentiment of the glorification of war across Europe. Numerous nations, particularly France and Germany, were militarily chomping at the bit for a fight, though neither would take action without reason. That reason, or rather an excuse, came in the form of the murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austrian throne, on June 28, 1914. Part of the royal aristocracy hailing from the imperial alliance between Austria and Hungary, Ferdinand visited Sarajevo where he was assassinated by Gavrio Princip, a participant of the Young Bosnia movement that wished for Bosnia and Herzegovina, among other South Slav regions, to be freed and combined into a Yugoslavia. By asserting Serbian collusion was afoot to organize the assassination, Serbia was blamed for the killing. Franz Ferdinand changed his plans. He decided to visit the men who'd been hurt by the bomb to see if they were okay. So he wanted to go toward the hospital. But there was a lot of confusion over the new route and who'd been told what and who hadn't been told what. So when the Archduke's driver turned off the Apple key, the general sharing Ferdinand's car told the driver, no, no, back up and continue on Apple key. So the driver stopped the car because it had no functioning reverse gear. And he stopped it right next to where Gavrilo Princip was standing. So Princip raised his pistol and fired twice from a distance of only a few feet away. Sophie died instantly and Franz Ferdinand's last words were, Sophie, Sophie, don't die. Stay alive for our children. Franz Ferdinand died shortly after.
Ferdinand heralded the instigation of what would become known as the July Crisis. Leaders of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were infuriated at the news and in a similar manner to the German-French relations, they also hungered for further triumphs against the Serbs and other neighboring regions. Under the guise of diplomacy, Austria offered a demand to Serbia, an ultimatum which had been designed to be so impossibly arduous that Serbia would have no alternative but to refuse. Serbian Crown Prince Alexander would later mention to visiting Russian delegates on his despair about the ultimatum, stating that it was an absolute impossibility to agree to or work with the Austrians on the issue. In reality, the Austrians were taking advantage of the occasion. The assassination gave them an excuse to declare war and rally assistance in advance. And being treaty-bound, Germany was more than happy to support Austria with their blank check as long as her own objectives were also focused upon. Despite many attempts from Britain, France, Russia and others to negotiate a peaceful response, Austria declared war on Serbia on July 28, exactly one month after the assassination. Before Austria began mobilizing troops, the Russians began expecting wider conflict and began mobilizing their forces in a defensive manner near Austria and Germany with the hope of non-violent resolution. Germany saw this as their opportunity. Announcing that the Russian deployment was aggressive and belligerent, they declared war on Russia on August the 1st and began mobilizing their soldiers into two planned regions, one against the Russian borders and another that would prove to be the fulcrum of the war. German authorities sent their other forces north and resolved to use Belgian territory to cross through and enter France. As the French and British discovered that the Germans were entering Belgium, they had little time to arrange for effective defensive action. Through international agreements, through the very concept of neutrality, through Belgium. The invasion of Belgium was demanded by the Schlieffen Plan, the master plan by which Germany hoped to win the war. To avoid the French fortress system, the Germans would cross Belgium, pass through Brussels, swing down into France, brushing the Channel coast, pass round west of Paris and attack the French armies from behind. The whole thing was expected to be over in 40 days. The results were catastrophic. While Germany advanced to France via Belgian territory, the rest of the Allies were enraged at the Huns' violation of neutrality. The apparent desecration of neutral soil from many nations was the final straw, and it would be this strategic front fought upon by the Germans that would plunge the world into global conflict for four years, resulting in the deaths of over 9 million combatants and over 7 million civilians. The entrance of Germany through Belgium and into France led to the British Empire, backed by Australia, New Zealand, India and Canada as part of the Commonwealth, declaring war on Germany. Largely, support for the war was initially enthusiastic and positive among the public, riding on the wave of the time-honoured and old-fashioned glory associated with conflict. Though, in the long run, this particular war would change that overall. Despite the public fervour and the propaganda rampant at the time, there were a few dissenting voices in the anti-war faction, and one of them was from an unexpected source. Historian Barbara Tuchman maintained in her books The Guns of August and The Proud Tower, two seminal pieces of work outlining the origins and environments in the lead-up to the Great War, that it was the British banks that were in vocal opposition to the war. This might seem outlandish to many people in this day and age, but the early 20th century was a transition from power through conquest to power through economics. 
In those early months, bankers, notably in Britain, were staunchly opposed to the sheer idea of conflict, claiming that it would be absolutely disastrous financially. But by the conclusion of the war, never again would objections from the banking sector be heard. War and conflict was discovered to be highly profitable and would become much more so as time would move into the later 20th century and into the 21st. Regardless of the anti-war protests from bankers and educators and other members of the public, the war machine rushed on across Europe and into the Middle East over four years. Four very long years. Following the Serbian incursion by Russia and the invasion by Germany into France by way of Belgium, the conflict dug into what became known as the Western Front, predominantly allies against the Germans on the ground in France and Belgium. The modern weapons weighed against the previous conflicts gave rise to trench warfare, presenting soldiers on both sides modern horrors previously unheard of. The quaking impacts of the shelling from the opposition, in combination with the inconceivable stress of the waiting game, that is, waiting for days in the trenches before attack orders, and the trepidation of knowing a large proportion of soldiers would be mowed down by machine gun fire when they rise above the trenches, gave rise to a curious condition that would initially be ignorantly referred to as cowardice. What we now refer to as post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, was dubbed as shell shock in the First World War, with symptoms triggering uncontrollable shakes and nervous twitching. Many who suffered the disorder were associated with those who deserted. Those who suffered from shell shock were initially charged with cowardice, as it was perceived that they were trying to get out of a fight. This inevitably ended with the punishment of being put to death by firing squad. It was also in the Great War where the armies of the time had some of their greatest technological innovations, some useful enough to later become commonly used and others terrifying and horrific that they are still censured to this day. The first and perhaps the most successful invention of the era was barbed wire. In the contemporary era, we are so used to seeing barbed wire line the top of walls for security or used in farming fences to keep livestock in certain areas and keep predators out. In World War I, it was an uncommon sight and proved difficult for combatants to get past, particularly when weighed down with weapons and equipment. There were 400 patents registered and it wasn't long before military bigwigs saw how cattle were hemmed in by the razor-sharp fencing and introduced it to the battlefield. 
that if it could be used to corral cows in the Wild West, then it could be used to corral men on the Western Front as well. The great thing about wire was it's an amazing system because it completely stops the enemy going where you don't want them. It's virtually impassable for humans to rip their flesh to bits. Also, even more destructively, you can use it to channel the enemy into attacking into little corridors where you set up a machine gun and turn it into an absolute corridor of death. Every time I'm confronted with barbed wire, I'm always amazed that something that looks so scrawny and insubstantial can have such a huge impact. I mean, I look at this and I think I should be able to get through this. I can see through it, and yet it's practically impenetrable. It's like being confronted with a huge granite wall. It's amazing that this thing that was mass-produced, it was lo-fi, it was cheap, had a huge impact on the way the First World War was fought. The additional advancement was the first modern usage of chemical warfare. Mustard gas, when deployed, would form wounds on the skin and break down flesh of the lungs when inhaled. Many soldiers died quickly after breathing in the gas. Another technological oddity from the First World War was the implementation of the giant railway guns, notably by Germany. These gargantuan weapons utilised the existing railroad systems as armies made advancements, sponsoring long-range 50 caliber shots. Their accuracy is occasionally disputed amid historians, but if a direct hit was made, the effects were devastating. The usage by Germany later incited France to develop their own railway guns, called Fortbusters. Away from the land, though, World War I was also notable for its advancements in warfare in the air and in the ocean. Naval warfare was the muscle of the British forces and an area that the Germans were beginning to develop into. As the war proceeded, the first German U-boats began seeing action, while the 1916 Battle of Jutland would develop into the biggest naval battle of World War I. It was the only full-scale conflict between battleships and one of the largest in history. Equally, aviation saw major advancements during the First World War, pushing the technology even further. Airplanes were initially used for recon during the early months of the war, but later specialization granted rise to fighters and bombers. Ace fighter pilots became popular during the era, with the famed Manfred von Richthofen, a.k.a. the Red Baron, becoming the most notorious. Meanwhile, away from the Western Front, the fighting began spreading into a Middle Eastern theater into 1915 and beyond, with the Ottoman Empire uniting with Germany and the Central Powers. British soldiers were joined by the Anzacs, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, and the Australian Light Horsemen in the Gallipoli Campaign. It was trench warfare now. Barbed wire, snipers, machine guns, boredom. Like France, yet not like France. Gallipoli was much further away. No one who went there ever came home on leave. From Dover to Calais, 22 miles. From Dover to Cape Helles, 3,000 miles. On Gallipoli, in 37 weeks, 31,000 Allied soldiers were killed, 73,000 were wounded, 93,000 went sick. For the wounded and sick, there were the fly-blown casualty-clearing stations. Then the hospital ships, perhaps just to Egypt, with luck, if you survived the journey, all the way back to England. In September, in one Anzac battalion, 78% were suffering from dysentery, 5% from weak hearts. Men developed a sharp appetite for the smaller things. Bathing in the sea became an inexpressible joy. 
to get away from the flies, wash off the dirt and dust, to feel cool again. The Gallipoli campaign was a vital, defining moment in the war for Australia, and was one of the broadest Allied losses in the entirety of the war. Adopting the Western Front-style trench warfare, the Australians were propelled into battle and often cut down quickly by machine gun fire, within mere minutes after launching above the trenches. The largest issue during the campaign was poor communication equipment and Allied use. The failed military campaign, coupled with extremely misguided British leadership out on the front, led to over 30,000 deaths of Britons, Australians and New Zealanders. The bearing of the Gallipoli campaign on Australia and New Zealand was intense and sobering. While the Commonwealth nations were still supportive of Mother England of the British Empire, the sheer toll of death of the young men conveyed off to war left a deep and marked impression on the public consciousness. Following the First World War, April 25 was established as Anzac Day, a military remembrance of the Gallipoli campaign and ultimately all wars which was, and still is, a very silent, sombre, sacred, and sobering commemoration for Australians and New Zealanders, a stark difference to some of the other grander military remembrance ceremonies in other nations, such as the United States. Elsewhere in the Middle East, a young British soldier by the name of T.E. Lawrence would make history by bringing together Arab troops in the fight against the Ottomans. In 1916, and during the remainder of the war, Lawrence was dispatched to the region because of his expertise in the area and first-hand knowledge of the culture and protocol. Working alongside the Arab irregulars, Lawrence led the soldiers into several victorious battles in the region, which in the long run led to the fall of Damascus. His sworn dedication to the Arabs during the war earned him the title of Lawrence of Arabia, and he would continue to advocate for them in the post-war years. There were additional areas of war that flared up aside from the Middle Eastern Theatre and the Western Front. There were movements involving Italy and Albania, and the Eastern Front of the Germans facing off with the Russians eventually was complicated by the Russian Revolution of 1917. World War I united the Russian people against a common enemy. It was popularly regarded as a holy crusade against the Germans. The Russian army's strength lay in its numbers. With one and a half million men and three million more in reserves, it was known as the Russian steamroller. But heavy industry at home was incapable of sustaining a lengthy war and couldn't supply enough munitions. The Germans had superiority in transport capacity and firepower, and by the end of 1914, over one million Russians, a quarter of the army, had been killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. Defeat at the front fueled disorder at home, and people turned against the government. In response, Nicholas took personal command of the armies in the field. Many regarded this as a foolish decision, as Nicholas had no prior experience in war and no understanding of military strategy. The Tsar was also now seen as directly responsible for defeats at the front. By 1916, 
War casualties numbered five million and frontline troops were sometimes down to one bullet each per day. Back home, the railways were in disorder, prices were soaring and supplies of flour and fuel had all but disappeared. Strikes and riots grew more serious. Under Rasputin and Alexandra, the government had become unstable and corrupt. Suddenly, in the early days of March 1917, frustration in the Petrograd food queues spilled over into revolt. People came out to protest, found many others there, and took courage. Now, turbulent forces suddenly broke the surface of Russian life. The French ambassador watched from the safety of his room. I heard a strange and prolonged din which seemed to come from the Alexander Bridge. Almost immediately, a disorderly mob carrying red flags appeared at the end which is on the right bank of the Neva, and a regiment came towards it from the opposite end. It looked as though there would be a violent collision, but on the contrary, the two bodies coalesced. The army was fraternizing with the revolt. Nothing could stop the sudden upsurge against the monarchy, symbol of the country's sufferings. Within days, the Tsar was forced to abdicate, and a 300-year-old dynasty came crashing to the ground. Back at the Western Front, however, numerous battles were overwhelming to both sides of the war. One notable campaign was the Battle of Passchendaele between July and August of 1917 for enhanced control of Belgium. The landmark battle would prove to be Canada's equivalent of Gallipoli, although this focus would turn out to be a success for the Allies. The scarring from earlier battles, as well as the almost torrential weather of the time, resulted in the land on the site of Passchendaele to be enormously miserable. Thick mud several inches deep, covered by makeshift wooden paths leading to the offensive fronts. The circular trenches were actually the water-flooded craters from previous shelling. Though triumph would be in hand for the Allies, the Canadian Corps would suffer some serious losses, with one unsubstantiated tale and perhaps a myth of a group of Germans crucifying a Canadian soldier to enrage the Allies. 1918 would produce a close to the Great War, following a long-hauled assault called the Hundred Days Offensive, led by the British, Australians, French, Canadians, Americans, Belgians and Portuguese, the Germans were rather literally beaten back from whence they came. An armistice was announced and established at 11am on the 11th of November 1918, denoting an end to the hostilities. The armistice would be commemorated across the world annually under abundant names, from Remembrance Day to Veterans Day. The aftermath of the war was at first rife with uncertainty, but as time progressed, the successful Allies were determined to place a pivotal blame for the cause of World War I. Through the establishment of the League of Nations, efforts began on what would become known as the Treaty of Versailles, a treaty that would be considered to be the recognized closure of the war. Most importantly was the controversial but significant ultimatum for Germany to accept full blame and full responsibility for the First World War. Similarly to the manipulative diplomacy from before the war, the Germans had been backed into a corner into having no choice but to sign and accept the blame, causing them to have to pay reparations to the Allies. 132 billion marks at the time, but equivalent in today's terms as 442 
billion US dollars. The immense demands for the reparations were so massive that it would not be until 2010 that Germany would make their concluding and final World War I reparation payment to the Allies. The signing ceremony took place on the 28th of June in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles. The signing was a deliberate piece of political theatre by Georges Clemenceau. He never forgot that the Hall of Mirrors was where the new German Empire had been proclaimed in 1871 after Prussia had defeated, then occupied France. The whole signing of the Treaty of Versailles at Versailles in the Hall of Mirrors was enormously important for the French. And the Hall of Mirrors had been Louis XIV's great hall in his great palace when France under Louis XIV had dominated Europe. It was in the Hall of Mirrors in 1871 that the new German Empire had been proclaimed. And so it was going to be now in the Hall of Mirrors that Germany signed the treaty which marked its defeat. And so Clemenceau planned it very thoroughly. He made sure that there was a special writing desk which had belonged to Louis XIV there. He made sure that there was a special inkstand that, that was there. He made sure that sitting in the front row in the Hall of Mirrors when the Germans came in were badly, grievously, horribly mutilated French war veterans. By this very scale, noting that it took nearly a century for Germany to pay up, it's easy to understand the responses from Germans in 1919. An overwhelming sense of humiliation swept the nation and its allies at the time, but pairing with the beginning of the Great Depression a decade later in 1929, it would directly result in the elevation of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis in Germany. In effect, the greed of the allies gave rise to the foundations of the next devastating Great War. World War II. But the Treaty of Versailles also imparted an effect on the world that we internationally still feel and deal with to this day. Ignoring the pleas of Lawrence of Arabia to consent to independence to their allies in the Middle East, the treaty organizers arbitrarily divided areas of the region among themselves, somewhat of a perverted holdover of colonial greed between the British and the French. This peculiar segregation of territories in the Middle East would affect its populations greatly and continued intervention in the region from Britain, France, the USA and the Soviet Union would aggravate things further. The Treaty of Versailles may possibly be seen as the central linchpin in history that would lead to a vast majority of the conflicts in this region, including the modern assaults against the forces of ISIL in Iraq and Syria currently. All of the objections from the Islamic jihadists in the region through history, come from a variety of sources, but all of them can be tracked back to the unsatisfactory result of the Treaty of Versailles. The First World War was comprised of crucial years that would shape the 20th century, and its long-lasting effects are still felt to this day. A vast reach of literature and films have been based on the conflict, from All Quiet on the Western Front, to Lawrence of Arabia, to Johnny Got His Gun, while Gallipoli and Passchendaele both had their film adaptations illustrating these defining 20th century moments for Australians and Canadians respectively. But it is in music where we find the spirit of war captured in time from the very beginning of the engagements. The propaganda in support of the war stemmed into music with songs like Now You've Got the Khaki On commending the sexual appeal of a man in army uniform while Keep the Home Fires Burning was popular in the dance halls during the era. Keep the home fires burning while your hearts are yearning. Though your lads are far away, they dream of home. There's a silver lining through the dark cloud. 
anti-war sentiment also had its say during the period, with songs every so often comically arguing against the war with tongue firmly planted in cheek. Oh, it's a lovely war, dripped with charming sarcasm, while the US and Canada saw I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier become a popular anti-war number. But it was well after the war that music began developing into a more precise picture of the conflict. For many nations, World War I had a devastating effect on their populations, with millions perishing. The sentiment, for the most part, was quiet and reflective, sobering and contemplative. Conceivably, the most well-known of the post-war songs is 1972's And the Band Played Waltzing Matilda. Written by Eric Bogle from Scotland, the tune tells the tale of a young Australian soldier during the Battle of Gallipoli. The song positions the view of war as being gruesome and pointless, with the main character returning home with legs removed. The song was later carried closer to the realm of metal-related subgenres when Celtic and folk punk band The Pogues covered it in 1985. Gallipoli became the topic for the film of the same name, directed by Peter Weir in 1981. In the same way of band played Waltzing Matilda, Gallipoli follows two young men enlisting in the Australian army for the conflict, only to be brought to the disastrous Gallipoli campaign against the Turks. Gallipoli became a quintessential Aussie movie, successfully capturing the Australian culture in the 1910s both at home and at the front. The film brought a surge of support for the annual commemorations of Anzac Day and became a critically acclaimed movie heralding the rise of Mel Gibson as a young successful actor. But perhaps the most memorable, though categorically not metal, element of the film was the inclusion of portions from Jean-Michel Jarre's alternative electronica opus, Oxygen. Similarly to Gallipoli, Passchendaele also received film treatment titled with the same name. Released in 2008, the movie was written and directed by Paul Gross, who also starred in the film. The movie follows the life of a Canadian soldier during the time, culminating in significantly powerful scenes depicting the Battle of Passchendaele. While not a worldwide commercial success, the film was critically acclaimed and was highly successful in Canada. As Gallipoli had its tale told in both film and song, the same would happen for Passchendaele. The turbulence and upheaval of the battle was hauntingly depicted by metal legends Iron Maiden in 2003 on their Dance of Death CD, an epic piece that has since become a fan favourite and often played live by Maiden. Thought to be a masterpiece, vocalist Bruce Dickinson would introduce it live by reciting a passage from Wilfred Owen's anthem for Doomed Youth, followed by the band performing the song, which was simply titled Passchendaele. In a foreign field he lay, lonely soldier, unknown grave. On his dying words he prays, tell the world of Passchendaele. (laughs) 
been through Last communion of his soul Rust your bullets with his tears Let me tell you about his years Earlier though, but correspondingly in the world of metal, another group would bring forth their thoughts on the war. In 1991, Motorhead released the album called 1916, and while it is not exactly a concept album, several of the songs included heavy references to the Great War. Although some of the songs on 1916 were clearly not about the war, a number of them were penned very vaguely, with lyrical concepts slightly hinting that it may pertain to the perspectives of soldiers before and after the conflict, giving a glance into the cultural mindset of the era. But it was the conclusion of the album, with the title track closing the piece as a slow ballad, out of character for Motorhead, reflecting on the massive loss of life and the futility of war itself. take the tapestry of World War I and weave it into their music. Maple Cross would focus on the foundations of war in 2007 on the album Homo, while Ancient Rites would record Ypres on their 2006 Rubicon CD, an album that had each song depicting a major battle from history. Earlier, however, in 2005, the monolith death cult would release 1917 Spring Offensive on their White Crematorium album. Meanwhile, that same year, the fundamental war band Bolt Thrower zoned in on the conflicts for their album, Those Once Loyal, with all of the songs focusing on the effect of the war on the entrenched soldiers. some metal bands recorded songs or even dedicated complete albums to the Great War, others began specialising in using the backdrop of World War I as their all-encompassing theme. Torchbearer would do this on their 2006 album Warnaments, which focused in detail on the revolutionary naval warfare technology from the conflict. Sabaton, another war metal outfit that specifically focuses on the concept of war in all of their music, also focused on World War I. Their most prominent effort on the topic was Angel's Calling, from their Atero Dominatus album in 2006, while they released The Price of a Mile and The Cliffs of Gallipoli on 2008's Art of War.
voices from the other side Hear them calling From a close now friends are resting side by side They will never leave our hearts or fade away Iron Maiden would revisit the war in 2006 with the legacy on the album A Matter of Life and Death, while in the same year, Skinless released Trample the Weak, Hurt of the Dead. Torchbearer also returned to the Great War on 2011's Death Meditations, wherein they recorded Coffin-Shaped Heart. In 2008, Dismember released Europa Burns on their self-titled album, while Switzerland Thrasher's Battalion released their Underdogs album in 2010, showcasing two First World War songs, Defenders and Running Alone. exclusive or dominant focus, Death Fear from Germany would offer a unique blackened thrash metal perspective on the war, while Sturmtiger of Denmark would focus on both the world wars in their material. But the most remarkable band to focus exclusively on World War I would be Australia's Sacrifice, coming from the Australian Capital Territory, emerging elements of black metal and death metal with thrash, Sacrifice's first full-length album in 2013 was entitled The Western Front focusing specifically on this element of the war. Minenwerfer would likewise zone in on World War I for their music, while Germany's Rotten Corpse included some aspects of the engagements in some of their songs as well. Initially focusing on concepts of Satanism and death for their early material, God Dethroned, the blackened death metal band from the Netherlands, would eventually migrate away from these traditional staples of the subgenre, and as an alternative, begin focusing on the Great War with the album Passchendaele in 2009. They followed up with an additional First World War album in 2010 called Under the Sign of the Iron Cross.
there's even more music about the Great War, and the most successful of all time in heavy metal is, of course, One by Metallica, based on the book Johnny Got His Gun. Also, their song For Whom the Bell Tolls, while based on the Spanish Civil War described in the Hemingway novel of the same name, actually also includes World War I references to further encapsulate the horror of war and the terror of death in combat. Additionally, Metallica would denote the throwaway of bodies as fodder for warfare in Disposable Heroes, a song representing not only the churning out of soldiers for the war machine of the First World War, but for all wars. Slayer would also capture this sentiment in aspect of their songs Skeletons of Society and Expendable Youth. Earth splashed in the touch of World War I with their song about the Red Baron, while Defeater's entire Lost World release focused on the conflict as well, and Zack Wilde looked into the long-term impact of the First World War on the Black Label Society CD 1919 Eternal. One of the most intriguing concepts involving metal and World War I was the release of Where the Corpses Sink Forever by symphonic black metal band Karash Ungren. The idea of the album doesn't actually focus only on World War I, but instead follows the damned soul of a soldier who becomes ensnared by demons in an eternal time loop, forced to relive events of both world wars as well as the Vietnam War. The inheritance of the Great War is forever etched into memorials, commemorations, but most importantly into the form of art, be it film, literature or music. Although our contemporary society seems to dominate its historical focus on the Second World War, the centennial year commemorating the beginnings of World War I seems to see an increasing fascination in the conflict in the likes of Sacrifice and Torchbearer in heavy metal. Perhaps with this centennial and the help of metal musicians, the true longer-term impact of World War I could be conveyed into the future music to come. And now it's time for a prehistoric mosh. Music about the First World War can be traced back to the years of the conflict itself, but the music created that would influence metal would come much later. Folk singer and songwriter Eric Bogle wrote many songs about the effect of the First World War, and his most well-known was the band played Waltzing Matilda. But another of his tunes would later be covered by the Dropkick Murphys, Fist of Steel, and Jeff Beck, and also tell of events from World War I. No Man's Land, also titled The Green Fields of France, 
is a song that reflects the grave of 19-year-old Willie McBride who died in the war. Let's take a listen. Well, how to do, Private William McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your grey side? And I'll rest for a while in the warm summer sun. I've been walking all day, Lord, and I'm nearly done. I see by your gravestone you were only nineteen when you joined the glorious fallen in 1916. Well, I hope you died quick and I hope you died clean. Or Willie McBride, was it slow and obscene? Did they beat the drum slowly? Did they sound the fight lowly? Did the rifles fire on ye as they lowered you down? Did the bugles sing last post in chorus? Did the pipes play the flutes of the forest? And did you leave a wife for a sweetheart? In some faithful heart is your memory shine And though you died back in 1916 To that loyal heart are you always 19 Or are you a stranger without even a name Forever enshrined behind some glass pane In the old photograph torn and tattered and stained And fading to yellow in a brown leather frame Did they beat the drum slowly? Did they sound the fight lonely? Did the rifles fire on ye? As they lowered you down Did the bugles sing last post in chorus Did the pipes play the flutes of the forest Well the sun's shining now on these green fields of France The warm wind blows gently And the red poppies dance The trenches have vanished Long under the plough No gas and no barbed wire No guns fighting now But here in this graveyard It's still no land the countless white crosses in mute witness stand to man's blind indifference to his fellow man and now let's have a glance at this week in metal news 
in a shock to metal fans this week, both drummer Sean Drover and guitarist Chris Broderick have left Megadeth. Both artists cite musical differences as their reasons for departure. The announcements now leave Megadeth's current early 2015 recording plans in doubt, while original members Dave Mustaine and Dave Ellison remain as they search for new members. Related to our focus on World War I, System of a Down have announced that they will be commemorating the centennial of the Armenian Genocide with the Wake Up the Souls tour in 2015. The Armenian Genocide was an attempt by the Turks, then the Ottoman Empire, to annihilate the Armenian people on April 24, 1915, as they were entering the First World War. The commemorative tour will take place in key nations involved in the Great War, including Britain, Germany, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Russia, and then finally closing out with the final show in Armenia on the night of April 23, 2015. The original black metal outfit Venom is returning and will be releasing their new album on January 27, 2015, entitled From the Very Depths. This is the first release from Venom since 2011 and has been highly anticipated by their fans. Several sources online are reporting that Facebook are changing their algorithms for pages, which will make it difficult for unsigned and independent metal bands to promote their material. Under the new rules, Facebook seeks to penalize overly promotional material and give more coverage to those who pay for boosted or sponsored posts. The news has not been well received by fans and bands alike. Battle Beast have released a lyric video for the new song Touch in the Night from their upcoming January 9 album Unholy Savior. The song is a complete departure for the band, moving towards a more poppier metal ABBA feel, though band members have stated the other songs on the album stay true to their metal roots. Glenn Danzig is making more noise about new material, now claiming a new song will be featured on The Walking Dead. According to an interview with Eddie Trunk, Danzig announced the new recording, stated that he's unsure whether it will be featured in an episode, but believes it will be on the next soundtrack for the critically acclaimed television series. The long-awaited return of Enough is Enough is now here, and the band have released a video for their version of Billy Squire's The Stroke. The version was featured on their new covers album called Covered in Gold, released earlier in August this year. The album also features interpretations of songs by Queen, John Lennon, Prince, and the theme song from The Greatest American Hero. Yes, they did do that. Tom Araya from Slayer, David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and Randy Blythe from Lamb of God collectively have been cast in cameo roles for a new heavy metal movie that is deliciously titled Hair Metal Shotgun Zombie Massacre The Movie. The movie is directed and written by Joshua Allen Vargas, and a trailer is expected to be released in the near future. British hard rocker Seventh Son were forced to relocate their benefit concert because a local priest was afraid their music would be anti-religious. The band was scheduled for a performance at a fundraising concert to benefit Speedway driver Ricky Ashworth, who had been seriously injured in a crash that put him in a coma for three months. Father Tomasz Wojcik of the Polish Catholic Center whipped up an outrage forcing the concert to relocate. Members of Seventh Son were surprised at the offence taken, particularly with the knowledge that several members of the band were actually raised as Catholic. And finally, in our unusual news bit tonight, we bring to you in the links of our show notes the team-up that you've been waiting for your entire life. Exhumed with the Supremes. Yep, those Supremes. Featured at the 12 minute and 19 second mark of the outrageous and highly weird Eric Andre show on YouTube, Death Metalers Exhumed perform a strange tune lasting only about 30 seconds or so at the end of the show with the Supremes. It's weird, and it just cannot be unseen. 
As mentioned, links to all the news bites can be found at heavymetal666.com in the show notes. And if you come across any awesome metal news, please share it with us at reddit.com slash r slash metal news. On the next Heavy Metal Historian, we come back to our ongoing look into the world of thrash metal. Having uncovered the origins of the subgenre and studying the rise of Metallica, Testament, Tankard, and others, we move now into the 21st century to look at the revival of the genre from a variety of nations and examine this thrash renaissance spreading across the planet. We look into the future of thrash metal. Keep up with us by subscribing to the show via iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Facebook or at MetalPodcast666 on Twitter, and send us a note. If there's a topic you'd like Heavy Metal Historian to research or report on, or if you've got questions that you'd just love for us to answer. You can also find me on the Blendover podcast over at blendover.com. We'll catch you on the next Heavy Metal Historian, Hails and Horns, but now it's time for our closing headbanger. The bizarre but haunting concept album Where the Corpses Sink Forever by Karash Ungren follows the damned soul of a fallen soldier forced to relive the torment of wars across history by demons trapping him into a time loop, dealing with the disquieting terrors of World Wars I and II and the Vietnam War. The song, lingering in an imprint haunting, establishes the setting for the eternal time loop, but also captures the torment of the soldiers entrenched in the muddied anguish of the Western Front. This is lingering in an imprint haunting from Where the Corpses Sink Forever by Karash Ungren as our closing headbanger. Sunday, October 3rd, 6 p.m. Rain. I was ordered to execute seven prisoners, lined up, blindfolded, and chained to a stake in a field.
Cerberus Mist, conjuring slaughtering soldiers into sickening silhouettes from death. Forsaken battlefield, no soul can be dismissed. Last if the devil's in charge, giving orders from the depths of the abyss. I can't 